The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. I wonder what you would do. Suppose the church that you founded was embroiled in division and arguments and fighting. Suppose the church that you had founded was living out a completely broken sexual ethic. Suppose the church that you had founded did not respect or honor one another. And when we use this word church, we need to remember that we're talking about gathered believers. We're talking about a group of gathered believers. We're talking about individual believers, people like you, people like me who are gathered together in one place. We're not talking about an organization or a building. Suppose the church that you had founded had a disorderly and chaotic gathering because everyone was so focused on making sure their own gifts were used and no one else's were. Suppose the church that you founded was questioning the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. I wonder what you would do. If you had the opportunity to to write a letter to them or or speak truth to them, I wonder what would you what would you say? How would you go about confronting them in these sins? What would you do? Each time I've read and reread the six verses that we're going to be talking about today, verses from in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, it's on page 711 on those Bibles in the seat in front of you. Each time I've read these six verses throughout the course of the week, I've found two primary emotions as I think about the situation that Paul was writing into, as I think about the church that he had poured his time, effort, and energy into, and the reality that they were not living out what he had created. The emotions that I felt were being astounded by it or being convicted by it. And astounded again because Paul's poured his time, effort, and energy into this and wondering how a church can start off so strong. You think the Apostle Paul had spent 18 months there, and then he left. And shortly after that, a man named Apollos, who was a quite gifted speaker, a fervent teacher of the gospel, could go into these particular churches and proclaim the gospel to them and see people be converted Astounded because just a few years after this, the church has resorted to all of their own, all of their old Corinthian behaviors. It's the first emotion. And the second emotion, honestly, is conviction. Because when I think about the, when I think about the sinfulness and the brokenness and the ways that people in the churches that I have been a part of, when they have resorted back to their own sin. What I read and what we're going to read does not describe how I feel about it. When I think about those kinds of things, the emotions that rise in my heart, and 
I don't know that I'm embarrassed to say this. I think I'm just going to be honest. The emotions that rise in my heart when I think about that sinfulness and brokenness are more emotions like anger, which leads to bitterness, which leads to judgmentalism. And when I read what Paul writes, I'm convicted of those sins. That's when I feel badly for the way I respond to people who, who would choose their old way rather than life in Christ. I think most of us, if we were honest, if we were in a church that was functioning in the way that the church at Corinth was functioning, most of us would probably be out of there in a second. We would see what was taking place and we wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. Most of us would leave. And I also know that it's true that that some of us have probably left a church for less. Some of us have probably left churches not because of sin in the church, but the sin in us that's unresolved and undealt with. And rather deal with the sin in me, it's easier to point the finger at the sin in others. So we have this space that the church in Corinth is operating under. They've fallen short in every way possible. It doesn't get, it doesn't get much worse than denying the resurrection of Jesus. All of those other things are, they're so, the fruit on that tree, it's so low-hanging fruit for, for divisiveness and preferences. Like that's kind of, I think, that's kind of like run-of-the-mill sin. But when you get into denying the resurrection of Christ, you have really big issues within your church. And this is what Paul is dealing with. And what's interesting is Paul doesn't give up on them. It's interesting what Paul does. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't gossip about them. He doesn't harbor bitterness over them. He doesn't get together with a few other people in the church and and form a group, a cabal, that's going to take their church back. Paul loves them. So Paul does the thing that I don't believe I would have the courage to do to my shame. Let's read verse 4 from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. One of the things that we need to see in this verse is Paul is not praising them for them. He's also not praising God for them. What he's doing at the beginning of this prayer is he is praising God for being God to them. He's not making it about them. He's making it about God. And this is important because they belong to Jesus. And because they belong to Jesus, God is worthy of his praise. That's what's going on in this prayer. See, God 
has saved them despite the fact that they are deeply sinful, despite the fact that obviously given the choice to live a new life or go back in the old way, they've decided to go back in the old way, yet God has loved them anyway. God has loved them despite that. And what Paul is doing is he is, he is orienting his own heart around the heart of God for his people. It would be easy for him to be angry and frustrated and gossip and complain and, and write them a, a tirade. And there are going to be some moments of tirade as we read through 1 Corinthians. But what Paul does first is he reveals his heart for the people of Corinth. And he has this heart for the people of Corinth because he knows God's heart for the people of Corinth. And he knows God's heart for the people at Corinth because he knows God's heart for himself. Because as, as you may know, Paul used to persecute followers of Christ. The last thing Paul would have ever done under his own will was to choose to follow Christ. He knew this. The people around him knew this. God knew this. Yet God chose to deliver Paul. So Paul has a changed heart. So he's writing from a changed heart. Paul was able to do this because God did it first. Paul was able to thank God for the church at Corinth because of what God had done for the church at Corinth. This is the next verse. This is verse 5. Through him, that's Jesus, God has enriched your church in every way with all your eloquent words and all your knowledge. This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. See, the church at Corinth was not enriched by anything that they had brought to the table. The church at Corinth wasn't the church at Corinth, wasn't a group of individual people who had been converted to the gospel of Jesus, who were united in mission and purpose of saving the world, partnering with Jesus. They weren't any of those things because of what they brought God did not look at any of the people before they became followers of Christ and said, you know what we need? We need one of those guys. What this text is telling us is the church was and is only enriched through the arrival and the presence of Jesus. See, a church can do lots of really fantastic things. A church can meet physical needs of people. A church, the people within the church, can proclaim a gospel of morality where we might look back on that and say, well, this is who I used to be, this is who I was, and now this is who I am. And what happened was I got together with all these people and I heard some really motivating speeches and, and I was so encouraged by what I heard that I decided I wanted to change my life. See, that's not what Paul is saying in his thank you, praise prayer to God as he's writing to the church at Corinth. 
He's saying the only reason you are enriched, the only reason you have value is because of the arrival and the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. And what I would tell you is that's true for you. That's true for us as a church. And yes, what we are made in God's image, we have inherent value and inherent worth because we have been made by God with certain characteristics. Every human functions in that same way. Every human being has been made in the image of God. But what Paul is saying to his people in Corinth, to God's people in Corinth, is the reason that you have anything is because of who Jesus is. In your greatest strengths and, and gifts and talents and skills, you might be able to accomplish a lot of things. But if Jesus isn't in that thing, you don't have anything. He continues now. 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 Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of Christ. Now you do. Now you do. You didn't have it then. When Jesus came and he entered into your church and he entered into your life. And if this sounds redundant, it's on purpose. Because one of the things that we need to grasp that Paul is saying is that it is only because of the presence and the power of Jesus Christ that we have what we need. He is the thing that gives us what we need. Did anyone else stay up until 12.30 last night and watch the Colorado game? Who went to bed at halftime? Man, you missed a game. Okay, so a couple people stayed up until 12.30 to watch the Colorado game. I, ha I, was, I was ill throughout most of the week, and I got to tell you, I had no business staying up until 12.30 last night. But I just love college football so much. There was this great, there was this great saying, Ann and I, Ann and I discussed it, and, and we, had to, we actually had to ask um, our Alexa device at home what a couple of the words meant by something that was said last night. One of the announcers talking about Deion Sanders, regardless of how you feel about Deion Sanders, um, John Walker last week tried to tell me that he was a Deion Sanders fan long before me because he remembers when Deion Sanders played for the Cowboys. Um, I righted his ship by telling him that I remember Deion Sanders from the Atlanta Braves and Atlanta Falcons. So I'm old school Deion Sanders. But there was this saying, the announcer said this, he has alchemized a moribund program. I don't think that's ever been said on college about anything in history. He has alchemized a moribund program. Well, we know what, you probably know what alchemy means. It's, it's making gold, right? The word that we had to hear from Alexa on was moribund. And that is, that's basically like underperforming, almost failing. 
Here's what Jesus Christ has done. What Jesus Christ has done has alchemized not just a moribund program in the church, not just a failing program in terms of humanity. What Jesus has done is alchemized something that was dead and brought it to life. That's what Jesus has done. No matter how great it looked, no matter how wonderful it appeared, no matter how eloquent the speakers were in Corinth, no matter the worldly wisdom that they held. Prior to the entry of Jesus into the world, they were nothing. It is only through Christ that we have every spiritual gift that we need as we eagerly await the return of our Lord Jesus. So when we have Christ, we have a response. We have to submit to him. We have to do what this alchemizing figure has done. We have to respond to it. We have to be obedient to it. We have to be willing to be made into that which we are not as human beings. And that only happens through the power of Jesus Christ. The only thing, and this is interesting as we, as we think about the church in Corinth, as, as we're going to be spending the next many months talking about the church at Corinth, the only thing they had without the submission to Jesus Christ was division. They had wise words. They had wisdom. But that combination of things, absent the alchemizing power of Jesus Christ, brought them absolutely nothing. It brought them division. It brought them problems. And the problem with the church in Corinth was not that they didn't have Jesus. Because again, as I said last week, Paul is writing to Christians, to the church at Corinth. Those are Christians he's writing to. The problem isn't that they don't have Jesus. They have Jesus. The problem isn't that they don't have gifts. They have gifts. The problem is their immaturity and their unspiritual attitude in response to Jesus. The problem is not the gifts. The problem is them. Because they've had this experience with Jesus. They've been called to submit to him. And apparently at some point there was a response. There was a partial response. But as many of us know in the room... Partial submission is not submission. Partial submission is not actual submission. And a church that refuses to submit to Jesus will produce diseased fruit. Without submission to God, they'll never be the church that God is calling them to be. So we ought to ask this question, what what kind of church is God calling the church at Corinth to be? What does, he, what does he want from them? 
What does he expect from them? And it says it in the text that we just read. He's calling their church to be one that eagerly awaits the return of Jesus. That eagerly awaits the return of Jesus. He's not calling them to be a church that passively awaits the church of, or the return of Jesus. He's not calling them to be a church that thinks it would be a good idea at some point to await the return of Jesus. He's not asking them to be a church that thinks to itself, well, once I get everything fixed and organized in my life, that's when I'm going to submit to Jesus. These are all partial submissions. These are all conditional submissions. And just like a partial submission is no submission, a conditional submission is no submission. What God wants from his people is the people who are eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. And they will demonstrate that by the way they behave. It won't be in their thoughts because God knows our thoughts. It won't be in their words. God knows the words. He, he knows when we gather together on a Sunday morning and we have the, the words of songs projected on the screen and we sort of sing them out, making really bold statements to God Beginning to end, my life in your hands. Great, great is your faithfulness. That's a statement to God right there. Well, is God's faithfulness great when you're enduring the hardships and realities of your life? Or are these just things that we say because we're gathered together and we're supposed to? See, here's what the church at Corinth would look like if it were eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. If we were to read through the rest of 1 Corinthians, which we're going to over the next nine months, a church that was eagerly awaiting the return of Christ wouldn't allow the preferences of their favorite speaker to be a cause for division. If you want to be a church that eagerly awaits the return of Christ, you will not allow your preferences for your favorite speaker, your favorite worship leader, your favorite music team. You're allowed to have preferences. I'm allowed to have preferences. I do. Cody made me so happy with my preferences the other night at the Summit Praise Banquet when he said, hey, I put the music that I put together tonight, John, you're going to love. It's all late 90s, early 2000s. And I was like, I was, man, I was in heaven. I loved it. I thought it was great. You're allowed to have preferences. What we're not allowed to do is allow our preferences to cause division. To allow our preferences to be more important 
to allow our preferences to be a cause and a reason to tear others down. That's what's going on here. And a church that eagerly awaits the return of Christ won't allow their preferences to be a cause for division. Here's another thing. A church that's eagerly awaiting the return of Christ won't boast about its sin, but will confront it. This is what's happening at the church in Corinth, in particular, in particularly in regards to their sexual ethic. It wasn't enough that people were just doing what they weren't supposed to do sexually. They were proud of themselves. They said to, to the world, look at what we accept. Look how welcoming we are. We're free in Christ. You can do whatever you want, wherever you want, however you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. This is what's taking place in the text. And a church that's eagerly awaiting the return of Christ doesn't tolerate sin, it confronts it. A church that's eagerly awaiting the return of Christ won't allow disputes within to foment anger, bitterness, and judgmentalism. When Christians have disputes with one another, a church that is eagerly awaiting the return of Christ deals with those disputes. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 6 or 7, Paul says something like, you are going to sit on the throne with Jesus. You are going to be with the angels and you are going to be judging the world. And you can't solve a petty division amongst yourselves. Who do you think you are? See, a church that eagerly awaits the return of Jesus deals with their issues. And again, I'm, I'm not talking organization, I'm talking us. When we have issues with one another, we actually talk to one another about them. We don't talk to someone else in the hopes that it, it'll go through the gossip train. We actually talk to the people that we have an issue with. This is how we eagerly await A church, and this is going to be very similar, a church that's eagerly awaiting the return of Christ would bring interpersonal disputes between one another to the church, with, to those in the church with wisdom, with the intent to reconcile because Christ had reconciled them to God. See, there's a reality that there are times where, where we might not be able to reconcile with one another. There may be people in the church who have, maybe we would call that an irreconcilable difference. Right? We don't know how to get along. We have this issue. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to find someone in the church that, that we trust. And we're going to bring our dispute to that person. And we're actually going to have a conversation about it. With the goal of reconciliation. And why? Because Christ has reconciled us to God. Don't you think... That if Christ can reconcile us to God, that if we have something that we have a difference over, don't you think that we ought to be able to reconcile that? Something I've thought for a really long time 
is that there are very few problems between people that 45 minutes over a cup of coffee at Starbucks wouldn't resolve. Maybe 10 gatherings at Starbucks of 45 minutes apiece. What if it takes 70 times 7? Isn't that what we're called to? To reconcile? A church that's eagerly awaiting the return of Christ would consider how their freedom in Christ impacts and affects others and would choose to forego their freedoms for the good of others. This is what it looks like to be a church that eagerly awaits the return of Christ. Because as we're going to talk about when we hit this later in 1 Corinthians, we do have freedoms. We have freedom in Christ to do lots of things. And sometimes, because everyone always sees themselves as the most mature person when it comes to our freedom, like if we, if we set aside our ego for a minute, most of us think that we're the most mature in any given situation. And because that's the case, what Paul is telling the church at Corinth is someone needs to give up their freedom over this. And it really needs to be the most mature to give up for the least mature. And they would not demand their convictions over the freedom of others. They would each submit to one another. We have freedom to play whatever kind of music we want to play on a Sunday morning. And as I've told Cody a million times, and he's okay with it, and as I've shared with you, not every single thing we play on a Sunday morning is my preference. But it ain't about me. It's not about what Cody wants. It's not about what our teams want. It's not about what you want. It's about what God hears, because what we're doing is praising and worshiping him. A church that's eagerly awaiting the return of Christ, will recognize that they were part of a larger body and had the responsibility to actively participate and use the gifts God had given them because it was only through the usage of their gifts that they could accurately be called a church. We are, that was a really big sentence. A church that's eagerly awaiting the return of Christ would recognize that they were part of a larger body. Right? We are part of a larger body. Not just in this room. I'm not just part of a larger body in this room. But we collectively as the church of Westway Christian Church, we are a part of a larger body. We have the responsibility to actively participate and use the gifts that God has given us. You have a responsibility. It's not an option. We really don't have a choice. Because it's only through the usage of those gifts that they could rightly be described as a church. See, we're not a church just because we sit in this room at 1015 on Sunday mornings. That doesn't make us a church. What makes us a church is when each person who is a part of the church is utilizing the gifts and the talents and the skills that God has given them. That's what makes a church. 
for the express purpose of worshiping, honoring, and glorifying God. That's what makes a church. You don't have a church if we're not acting like a church, if we're not in unison with one another. A church that's eagerly awaiting the return of Christ would allow itself to be defined by their love for one another. And if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard the verses I'm going to read next. A love that's demonstrated by patience and kindness, not by jealousy or boasting or pride or rudeness. See, the kind of love that defines a church doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So think back to this division. Think back to this need for reconciliation. Think back to the way that we hold on to things that we need to let go. A church that's eagerly awaiting Christ doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't allow anger, bitterness, and judgmentalism to fester. That's my addition, and I put that in here for me, not for you. This kind of love doesn't rejoice over injustice. It rejoices when truth wins out. This kind of love never gives up and never loses faith. This kind of love is always hopeful and endures in every circumstance. See, these are the kinds of things. It is this the kind of love that is demonstrated when a church is eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. Not passively awaiting the return of Christ, but eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. It's a group of people who are filled with love, care, and concern for one another. And not just one another, but it's demonstrated in love for others. And not just love for others within this room, but love for, people, love for others outside of this room. This is what a church looks like when it eagerly awaits the return of Christ. And the question that we all all know is, well, when is that going to happen? That's great, John. How long do I have to do this? I think I got six months in me of tolerating all of you people. This is the importance of Jesus. This is verse 8, verses 8 and 9. He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be free from all the blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this. For he is faithful to do what he says and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, this kind of goes back to having everything we need in Jesus Christ. Because absent Jesus Christ, outside of Jesus Christ, we do not have the strength to endure to the end. If you are trying to, to white-knuckle your faith to the end, absent Jesus Christ, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You weren't designed to make it. What you need, what I need, and what we need as a church is we need Jesus. What's interesting, the Bible that I use has the, has the words of Jesus, or when it mentions Jesus, it has it in red letters. And what I find so fascinating about 
the first ten, first nine verses of First Corinthians is just using the red letters. I count beginning at verse one. One, two, three, four, five. I'm gonna do that again. One, two. See, there are so many. It's on purpose. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So in nine verses, in ten, in nine verses, Jesus or Jesus's name is mentioned ten times. It's almost as if Jesus is more important than any of the shenanigans that they have going on at the church at Corinth. It's almost as if that what Paul is attempting to do in, his, in this letter is to draw their eyes off of themselves for 30 seconds and focus their attention on Jesus Christ. Can you just 30 seconds? Paul has a gospel to share with the church at Corinth. And it's the only gospel that's going to fix their problems. And the gospel is probably not going to lead to them all getting their way. Someone is coming out like, as I said last week, man, I would love to have been in the room when this letter first got read. Because somebody's coming out of this with some major adjustments they have to do in their lives. With some massive submission to Christ that needs to take place in their lives. And my guess is, because I've been doing this for 18 years, there are some of us in the room that have some massive issues that need to be addressed in this text. And one of those people is me. So if you think I'm talking about you, I'm talking about me. I have some massive adjustments that need to be made. It's not going to be the gifts in the church that keep it strong. It's not going to be the various personalities of those in the church who keep it strong. It's going to be the person of Jesus. And unless and until the church at Corinth looks to Jesus, they're not going to persevere to the end. It's about Christ and I think, I believe, the text is telling us that this is how Paul can look at the church in Corinth and his first thoughts of them lead him to praise God for them. Wouldn't that just be amazing? If however you think and feel about the church, capital C church, however you think and feel about Westway Christian Church, wouldn't it be wonderful if the first thought you had was about how faithful God was to that church? Wouldn't that orient your soul? A church that understands what God has done will not allow anything to interfere with the gospel of Jesus. Style of music, when, where, how we do communion, whatever your pet peeve is, a church that wants to be faithful doesn't allow anything to get in the way of the gospel of Jesus. 
A church that understands what God has done will not allow anything to interfere with the proclamation of that gospel. I'm not going to let my thing, whatever my thing is, however important my thing is, I'm not going to let that get in the way of our mission to tell people about Jesus. That's what a church that understands what God has done. A church that understands what God has done will remember the way they are together is their primary proclamation of the gospel, and that's John 17. Our primary proclamation of the gospel to a people who don't know Jesus is not on YouTube. It's not our primary proclamation of the gospel. Our primary proclamation of the gospel as a church is the way that we are together. When people walk into this room or they encounter us in the community and they see the way we are with one another, according to what Jesus says in John 17, that's the primary proclamation of the gospel. That's how people are going to know that you love me is by the way that you are with one another. A church that understands what God has done will accept the invitation to enter into partnership with Jesus. They're going to hear this invite and they're going to accept it. Even if it costs them not hearing their favorite song on a Sunday morning. Even if it costs them their preference of the way someone gives a communion meditation over the way this other person gives a communion meditation. These are the things that we must sacrifice. And lastly, a church that fails to understand what God has done will choose another path. They'll choose the path of Corinth. And I've recently, as I've recently shared, the last thing you want to be called is a Corinthian. For the, for the meaning that that had behind it. We are called to be Christians, not Corinthians. We are called to be united and not divided. We are called to be one. Because God has given us an example of what oneness looks like. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we would simply hear your word today and it would burrow deeply into our souls. That as we think about your word this week, we will consider the ways that we have not been faithful to what you've called us to. I pray this week that we would be thankful for the work that you do because you are so incredibly faithful. You are so incredibly good. And you don't let our brokenness, you don't let our sinfulness get in the way of the accomplishment of what you've done for us. And I pray that we would be a people who would cast aside all things 
in submission to your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.